Fighting climate change isn't cheap. So where is the money coming from? Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. On today's program, tapping into the power of the purse. Philanthropic organizations, both large and small, are taking on the climate challenge. But there are only so many donor dollars to go around. Compared to so many other pressing concerns in the world, how does climate change rate? There's poverty, it's bad, we want to do our best, but we'll be able to continue to work on poverty into the future. But we have 10 to 15 years left to deal with the climate problem, and if we fail that, we go over a cliff. Whatever we're going to do here, it's got to be something that can get us there in this short period of time. That's Larry Kramer of the Hewlett Foundation, one of the top funders of climate causes. But in many ways, small to mid-sized foundations can be more effective on a grassroots and community level. Farhad Ibrahimi of the Chorus Foundation says that means bringing everyone to the table. We're going to need the folks who really care about housing or really care about transportation or really care about policing, racial justice, any of these other things. We need them to be part of the climate movement. But for that to happen, the climate movement has to listen to them and has to do climate work in a way that is informed by and accountable to their other concerns. Where's the money coming from? Where is it going? What are the big wins and what missteps are being made along the way? Today, Greg Dalton is joined by donors big and small to try and answer those questions. We start things off with three guests. Larry Kramer is president of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. Kramer is also on the board of ClimateWorks, which is a funder of Climate One. Farhad Ibrahimi is the founder of the Chorus Foundation, which helps to support communities in the transition from fossil fuels to a green economy. And Tate Williams is the science and environment editor for Inside Philanthropy. Here's their conversation about climate change and philanthropy. Tate Williams, let's begin with you. 2006, An Inconvenient Truth comes out. There's another big um, intergovernmental panel on climate change report. U.S. popular opinion is at a, 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 then an all-time high. Take us through the, the, the 2006 to 2010 when things ended up in a different direction. Mm, yeah, so that's a really that sort of period of time I think looms really large uh, in climate philanthropy and for like the environmental movement in general. Um, and I think it starts, the philanthropic story starts, I think, with Design to Win. Uh, and Design to Win was a report that about, I think it was five large uh, climate foundations, uh, they basically commissioned it. They commissioned uh, some consultants to put together a report that would sort of say, look, if we put some money together and we really focused on this, What's the best way that we could be a climate leader and really make a dent in this issue? Um, and what they came back with was a very sort of policy-focused, uh, it was very mathematical, very engineering-focused. It was sort of framed climate change as a math problem. Um, and, it, you know, I'm, I'm selling it a little bit short, but that was kind of, um, it was a very uh, kind of... Uh, a uh, technocratic sort of document, I guess, if you want to think of it that way. And uh, it focused a lot on policy expertise, technical expertise. That was kind of like the, the theory of change, that if we present this expertise to, uh, to decision makers, then they'll make the right choices. Um, and then that sort of created uh, an entity called ClimateWorks. Uh, and ClimateWorks uh, was put together as a way to sort of carry out that agenda. And it, it very much sort of set the stage for the next 
you know, well, in some ways it still is kind of setting the stage for, for philanthropy, um, climate philanthropy. Uh, and, you know, a big part of that uh, agenda was some sort of a carbon market in the United States. And so that sort of ended up uh, being not directly related, but uh, Climate Works and then the supporters of Climate Works ended up backing uh, the cap and trade bill uh, that ultimately went down in flames in 2009. Uh, so I think that uh, there were a lot of lessons about what uh, happened after cap and trade, and there's been lots of sort of uh, autopsies and you know uh, fingers pointed about how it went wrong. Um, the one that interests me the most in terms of philanthropy is the assessment that came from a couple of uh, reviews, uh, one by Theta Scotchpole and one by some folks at the Rockefeller Family Foundation that commissioned it. And one of the conclusions it came to was that. The environmental community, namely the big foundations and the big NGOs, had essentially made an end run around the grassroots. They had sort of uh, taken a shortcut around movement building and went straight for the meetings with the elites and sat down with industry, came up with a compromise, uh, and they had a bunch of industry on board and they had a lot of leaders on board. But one of these conclusions is that they just didn't fund the grassroots. They didn't support the grassroots to the extent they needed to. And it was like a, I think the term somebody used was a head without a body. Um, so that's, that's the conclusion that has interested me most in my writing because I find that even today, philanthropy doesn't fund the grassroots enough. They don't fund movement building enough. Um, and then in particular, I find that they don't fund communities of color and low-income communities that have the most to lose uh, when it comes to climate change. And there's a lot of data behind that. I don't want to, like, I could throw a bunch of numbers if, if you want, Greg, but, um, and, you know, Larry might disagree with some of this assessment, but, uh, yeah, that still kind of drives a lot of what I write about now, is in that time since cap and trade, what, how has philanthropy responded? Have they changed their ways? Larry Kramer, today the Green New Deal became more real. There's a, a, a bill introduced, but one of the same co-sponsors is the main piece of legislation just about exactly 10 years ago. So the political context has changed. How is the philanthropic response going to be different today, learning on the lessons that Tate Williams, if, whether you agree with them or not, learning on the lessons from the last 10 years? Yeah, well, so I agree and, and not exactly disagree, but I think there's a little more to the story. So one, Design to Win is, and we have always thought of the problem as a global problem. So this is mostly about the United States that Tate is talking about. And when we think about what we need to be investing in, you know, so you're not going to do the same thing in China or India or Indonesia or Mexico or Brazil or Europe as you're doing in the U.S. And a very large portion of the philanthropy is outside the United States as well. Um, two, the context in the United States did change significantly in the sense that um, the perception was that at the time Climate Works was launched, in fact, governments including in the U.S., were ready to take action so there was less perception of a need to build a movement. And, of course, there's a lot of 2020s hindsight, but there's no question that the political dynamics changed after Obama's election and the oil companies mobilized in a way. And it's both not just uh, the failure of cap-and-trade, but also Copenhagen. And that caught us by surprise. Um, there's no question there. And there's been a lot of changing since. At the same time, just two other quick points. One is, and this is not just about us, and I don't mean this to be defensive. I mean it to, for people. There is a wide perception that we're, like, failing in this movement, and that is absolutely not not true. 
In 2007, the globe was on track for, say, five to six degrees warming by the end of this century, which is civilization ending. We are now between what's been done and pledged on track for, say, 2.7 to 3.2. And when you think about the fact that the entire globe was running on fossil fuels, the entire world economy, that is unbelievable progress, really one of the most successful philanthropic movements in history. Now, we still have a degree or a degree and a half to go, and that last degree, degree and a half, is way harder than the first. So the way we look at it is there is unquestionably a need for the movement building piece. Um, it probably could and should have been started sooner. We have done some of that. But at the same time, all the things that we have been doing also need to be done. And so the real problem is not like we shouldn't be doing this, we should be doing that. It's that we need to be doing all of this because there are multiple paths and it requires all of these things. And the problem is there's just not sufficient philanthropic resources. So if we pull out of here and move it over here, just something else doesn't get done. And the question is really, what are we going to do to be able to play all of the bases at the same time? I want to get Farhadi Rahimi in here in terms of your view on whether uh, philanthropy is winning, but maybe just not fast enough or... Or are there wins at all? I mean, I think there, there have certainly been wins, right? And I want to sit with what Larry said, that actually there have been quite a few shifts. But I think one thing that, that uh, I struggle with a lot is that our, our notion of climate solutions, I think, needs to be more complicated because not all of the things that we call climate solutions are, first of all, they're not all solutions for climate, but some of them exacerbate other issues that we might care about, right? There's climate solutions that can make housing issues work. There's climate solutions that can extract wealth or exploit labor. There's climate solutions that can even have implications for things like you know, mass incarceration or policing. Uh, because of the way our systems work, um, when we say that we're moving more resources to climate, that is incredibly important. Uh, that is the first step, but then I think we need to talk about where specifically those resources are going. Uh, because from our perspective at Chorus, we're not just concerned about the degrees in the greenhouse gases. We're concerned about what is the ripple effect that we can see in the economy, uh, the ripple effect that we can see in other systems. And is Chorus interested in protecting power and wealth or redistributing power and wealth? Well, that's a softball question. <laughs> if I've ever heard one. <laughs> I mean, for us, power is the central frame for all of this. And this, is, um, this isn't just about climate philanthropy. I think this is about philanthropy writ large, that uh, we can tend to get fixated on the policies or the technologies, or in the case of climate, the science, um, when really what we lack, the missing ingredient, is the power to implement those things, the power to invest in those things, the power to heed that science. And so for us, that raises a few questions for us is how we approach philanthropy about what we fund and how we fund it. So what we fund, it's most important for us to support power building in the very communities that Tate identified, in communities of color, indigenous communities, and working class communities, who are the communities that are always left out when there is some kind of large-scale transition. Um, and that's why we believe in the frame of just transition, this idea that systems change is a good frame, but systems change all the time, right? That's not actually that special. But for a system to change in a way that's just that's equitable, that has the right folks at the table to determine what happens in their community, that's something that would be really special. And that's a question of power and a question of supporting folks to build power. So that's what we believe we need to support at Chorus. But then the how we support it is also a question of power, right? Because we need to situate ourselves as funders and think what power do we hold? How are we 
potentially abusing that power if we're not careful, if we're too directive and say, this is the policy we want. We put out a request for proposals from organizations to implement that policy, like their service providers, as opposed to seeing them as the leaders and the visionaries who know what need to happen, and us as supporting from alongside or from behind rather than directing what happens. Rob Reich is a professor of political science at Stanford, and he's author of Just Giving, How Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better. Here's Rob Reich on the Grassroots Community Network. Power is ubiquitous, but power, especially if it's concentrated power with very large donors, is something that deserves scrutiny, not gratitude, or at least not only gratitude. What a foundation represents is something like the standing invitation to wealthy people to insert their private preferences about how society should be organized into the public sphere. Um, Or to put it more bluntly, perhaps, it's a standing invitation for plutocrats to operate in democracy. The foundations have very low accountability. They have low demands for transparency. They can operate um, under the radar. You don't have to have a website. You don't have to accept grant applications. You have to file a tax form every year with a minimal amount of information. That's Rob Reich, professor of political science at Stanford University. Uh, Larry Kramer, you used to be a, a dean at Stanford. Your response to his comments about power, transparency... So, you know, I've debated Rob a bunch of times on this, but I hate to do this, but I can't conceivably in the amount of time we have here. I mean, these are complicated issues. If you go further into Rob's own thing, he doesn't say the philanthropy is bad or wrong, but just that it needs to focus on a couple of things in particular that there be pluralistic funders who are doing many different things and that the funders be focused on the experimentation and filling the kinds of gaps that government and markets can't. And I agree with him on that. And I think we have that responsibility. I also agree with him on transparency. And, you know, so, so a lot of that is what foundations can do, which is not quite the same thing as what many foundations do do. And it, it, that's a really complex debate. Can I could just come to one point about Farhad's? Because I don't disagree. I just, there is an elements of climate that are different from any other philanthropic problem that we have to keep in mind. Because I agree with all of that. But the difference is, if you, two differences. One is we know that if we fail on the climate point, if we hit any of those tipping points, that it's going to have massive consequences for every other problem that we care about, in philanthropy and otherwise. And two, we know that, it's say poverty, there's poverty, it's bad, we want to do our best, but we'll be able to continue to work on poverty into the future. But we have 10 to 15 years left to, to deal with the climate problem, and if we fail that, we go over a cliff. So that's not to disagree with any of that stuff about what to do, it's just to say that the lens that we take and that one needs to take on climate philanthropy is whatever we're going to do here, it's got to be something that can get us there in this short period of time. And that definitely changes the way you think about all of these issues, even within that context, which we, you know, like, so we have not done adequate, for instance, outreach to a lot of uh, uh, diverse communities, and it's taken us a while, but, you know, we recognize that in order to, if we do want to build the political movement fast enough, we need to get them in there. If that were otherwise, I would think about it differently on climate, even if I agreed on all the other areas in which we worked. Because, because everybody's going to suffer a hundred times more if we, if, we, if we don't hit that mark. So climate trumps some other... It's not climate trumps. It's the lens you have to take to it. I don't like it's a, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's just a little different. You have to be thinking about the fact that in thinking about your solutions, you've gotta, they've got to be able to keep us within two degrees, hopefully, um, within 10 to 15 years, 12 to 15 years. Farhad? Yeah, I wanted to underline something you said that I really strongly agree with, that it's, it's about 
building that bigger we and bringing other folks in, like that is one of the reasons I think connecting climate to other issues is strategic, even if climate is our number one focus, because to build a big enough base to really have the political power to change this and then to implement it correctly, right, at every state, every city and rural communities, et cetera, we're going to need more than just the folks who already think climate is the most important thing to work on. We're going to need the folks who really care about housing or really care about transportation or really care about policing, racial justice, any of these other things. We need them to be part of the climate movement. But for that to happen, the climate movement has to listen to them and has to do climate work in a way that is informed by and accountable to their other concerns. So I absolutely agree, but I think it's a yes and. I think the right strategy to win on climate is to connect it to the economy and these other questions. I do want to respond to one thing Larry, Larry said. I would really hate to give the impression that I'm sitting here saying that grassroots funding is the one thing that we need for climate change, to solve climate change, uh, and that somehow all these other things are dumb or a waste of money. I don't think that at all. I, in fact, I agree with what Larry's saying 100%. This is a massively complex problem. We need many, many solutions and many, many minds involved. But if you look at one study came out that looked at foundation funding from 2011 to 2015 and found that 20 organizations got half of the funding. Um, that to me doesn't sound like a plurality of ideas or voices. And that's where I challenge philanthropy to break out of those, those molds of those same you know, big players that they've been funding since the 70s and the 80s and actually go and get diverse opinions. Um, so that's my little retort. Uh, <laughs> it's not a retort, have... just so you know. <laughs> I mean, I agree with one, I'll just, one qualification. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 which is just between 2011 and 12, 2015, we had the Obama administration and we expected to have the Clinton administration and the capacity to get the things done that needed to get done looked very different than it did after 2016. It's not to say we shouldn't have been, <laughs> but again, in thinking about those judgments about what are our biggest opportunities to get the most done within the time frame we have, have and the difficulty that it looked to us given the resources that we had for building political movements versus the opportunities that were available not just in the U.S. but in China uh -huh. and India and elsewhere to make progress. I again, it's just whether it was right or wrong in hindsight, it's to see it from the two different perspectives. I will say that I just today looked at the 2018 grants for several large foundations. Not that different. Um, getting there. Though. Getting there. <laughs> getting there. Okay, I'll take that. As uh, which is why we're thrilled to be joined by <laughs> other funders, because as I said, we yeah. don't feel like we can abandon what we're doing. So if we take from you know Peter and give to Paul, we need both Peter and Paul. We've got you know we haven't solved anything. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Larry Kramer, there's about $400 billion in philan charitable philanthropy in the United States every year. Climate is about, what, 1% or 2%. Why aren't more foundations funding climate? Good question. So, so first, just to be clear, um, most of that $400 billion is in little individual contributions. So the organized philanthropy part is about $50 billion. Mm. Still not, you know, chump change. Um, and of that, it's still less than 1%. And most of it goes to churches and education. Uh, yeah, that's the individual stuff. Not the, the foundation, give, professional staff foundations, they're giving is quite different. But it's still not, not to climate by any, you know, and I, I've struggled with this a lot. We're spending, we're, you know, we're engaged in a major effort to try and bring more resources in because, you know, as I sit and I listen and I think, yes, yes, it's kind of the yes and, but I think, you know, like, these guys could, if we shifted and did what they're doing, then you could just bring two other people up here who we weren't funding, who would be like, what about us? And you'd want to go, yes, yes to them too. So as I say, the big issue is to get resources because all this stuff needs to get done. Now, when I think about it, um, I think part of the reason is a lot of people don't act. It's surprising to me how many 
uh, funders really don't know or don't really fully appreciate what the climate thing is about. Um, for many of them, the defeatism that has run through the public discussion, which is why I try and emphasize how much progress has been made. You know, who wants to give to a losing cause and who wants to give to mm. something that's hopeless and too big to get your arms around, which isn't true, but we have trouble really getting all that out. And for many, it's, you know, the, the effects, now this is becoming less true, but the effects have felt distant and abstract. So, you know, it's like if I drop a ball, it's not going to hit the ground until later. We're at the dropping phase. And until the ball's hitting, they don't really feel like they need to do anything. And I think it's different mixes of those for different people. But, um, you know, the net result is, is we need at least two or three times the resources we have. Larry Kramer, uh, you wrote a blog about listening to our critics and listening with empathy. So I'd like you to kind of expound a little bit about what you were talking about, how foundations need to listen with empathy to their, to their critics. Sure. So first, everybody needs to. But, you know, part of it was I understand why it's difficult in some fields, but in philanthropy, there's no excuse mm-hmm. not to. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, you know, it's, it's, it's really... I, it's a, I was a law professor for many years, and I used to say the most important thing we would teach our students was how to really understand the argument on the other side, the way it seemed reasonable to that person. And then until you could do that, one, you wouldn't understand your own argument, not really. You wouldn't know its strengths and weaknesses. But two, you wouldn't actually understand where the ground for common understanding was. And often, even if you continued to disagree, it would bring down the temperature. And that... Um, what we've drifted into as a society is instead of people actually listening and engaging, we don't ignore the other side, but we either treat their, take their worst argument and treat it like their only argument, or we, we assume that they actually know we're right and, and attribute bad motives to them, they're self-interested or they're racist, or we say, you know, well, they're a blank, and then you can fill in the blank, white man, Black Lives Matter supporter, Trump voter, you know, whatever it is, and therefore I don't need to listen to them at all. And you see increasingly those as the, what passes for public argument. And as that happens, we accomplish less, we understand each other less, we find less room for common ground. And as I said, there's no inconsistency between believing passionately in a position and taking the time to understand the other side. So, Farhad, I want to ask you about how much of your work is, is focused on changing people's minds, because so much of our discourse these days is about persuasion. If you just you know, get people to change their mind, is that part of what you're doing? Well, I mean, it's part of what our grantees do. Um, And I think like a very timely example in that people care about it now in ways that they didn't necessarily when we started supporting this work is the organizing we support in the coal country of eastern Kentucky. So after the election in 2016, everybody's very interested in coal country and what kind of a barometer is it for the, you know, mythological Trump voter and all these kinds of things. Um, But we've been supporting multi-issue rural organizing in eastern Kentucky for a while now. Uh, And one of the things that is really clear to me when our grantees talk about their work is they're not looking at people by what their party affiliation is or how they voted in the last election or anything like that. They're treating them like real people and they're organizing them by asking them what they care about and then helping them connect to education and relationships and trainings and leadership development so that they can act on the issues that they care about. Tate Williams, a lot of the wealth uh, that is in the coffers of foundations was made in markets, you know, capital markets. Uh, so talk about how this sort of belief that markets can solve all problems and how that most problems and how that filters through to, to philanthropy and the philanthropists behind them. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that they do tend to focus on market-based solutions a lot. Um, a lot of the big grantees I was mentioning before, 
Um, you know, a lot of the big green groups, they definitely do focus on market-based solutions. Um, and, you know, maybe I think that it's possible that there is, um, you know, some sort of, you know, political, you know, skew there because, you know, the money came from capitalism, the money came from competition. And so it's, you know, somebody once told me that the money is going to be, you know, the money was raised by competition, it's going to be spent with competition. Um, so a lot of the principles I think of capitalism carry over into uh, philanthropic decision-making. Um, I will say that uh, another sort of component that I think makes, perhaps uh, affects philanthropy's decision-making even more than that would be um, that sort of fixation I was talking before about uh, the need for results, which it sometimes gets called strategic philanthropy um, that, you know, it's been around forever, but in the way we know it now, it started around like 2009, maybe, I don't know, probably much longer than that. But, um, you know, it's, it's basically, uh, you know, sort of this approach that you need to have a, a specific goal and need to have metrics measured uh, against that goal in order to make the grant worthwhile, almost like a VC approach. Um, and so that, again, that's kind of like a market-based sort of attitude, uh, venture capital. That's Tate Williams, science and environment editor with Inside Philanthropy. We've also been hearing from Larry Williams of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and Farhad Ibrahimi of the Chorus Foundation. This is Climate One. Let's continue with our discussion about funding climate solutions with our next set of guests. Sarah Shanley Hope is founding executive director of The Solutions Project a national organization focused on 100% clean energy. Dan Chu is executive director of the Sierra Club Foundation and a board member at Confluence Philanthropy. And Joe Spiker is executive director of Autodesk Foundation, which supports those tackling the world's most pressing challenges through design and engineering. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Before we begin with them, we're going to hear from Matthew Nisbet, a professor of, at Northeastern University who studies climate philanthropy. Here's his analysis of where the money is going. I put together a database of more than 2,100 grants from 19 of the largest foundations. One of the key findings of my research was that only 20 organizations received more than half of the $556 million that was distributed. So you have a fairly a strong sort of monoculture of groups and ideas that are receiving most of the financing from the foundations. But following the defeat of cap-and-trade legislation in 2010, there was a lot of criticism of the long-standing climate foundations, for example, not taking seriously enough the need for grassroots organizing and mobilization, uh, that you need to start focusing more on organizing alliances and speaking with new constituents and new stakeholders, particularly in politically strategic congressional districts and states in the Midwest. Uh, the foundations, along with their grantees, definitely corrected strategy. They put a lot more money into addressing the needs of low-income communities and communities of color, in particular related to affording the cost of renewable energy and energy and efficiency retrofits. Nearly 30% of the $556 million went to either climate change communication, communication and mobilization on behalf of renewable energy, or mobilization activities to sway public opinion against the fossil fuel industry. Any really big, complex problem like climate change calls for response diversity. You know, there's no single coalition of groups or no single technological approach that's going to solve this problem. 
That's Matthew Nisbet, Professor of Communications and Public Policy at Northeastern University. Sarah Shanley Hope, I'd like to hear your response. There was a monoculture of ideas and funding, and the foundations responded and diversified. Is that fair and accurate? Um, I thought that in the previous panel, this notion of like incremental change is happening, so we want to celebrate that. And, you know, I, I do think that the problem is less of a resource constraint and more about distribution, that um, there is such a concentration still of resources within our sector in, um, you know, very similar strategies, if not organizations. So I think uh, the number that we're, it's hard to find the data because there isn't a lot of transparency, but what we're finding within the United States is that 95% of US foundation giving is uh, focused on 90, um, so as I said, 95% to white-led organizations, 70 to 80% uh, male-led organizations. And I went to business school, and I think the two things that I took away from business school, one is that diverse teams outperform in any context, and two, that the messenger matters more than the message. Mm. And so for, for climate, for all of us that care about climate action and solutions, um, that should be a really big uh, wake-up call for us around diversification. Dan Chu, the Sierra Club's one of the biggest environmental organizations. Does it soak up more than its fair share of money? Uh, no, we don't get enough money. I mean, that's <laughs> I, I just want to make sure that uh, I say that. But uh, a couple of things I would say. One is that uh, the Sierra Club, uh, one of the most successful campaigns has been the Beyond Coal campaign, which has been focused on shutting down uh, coal plants. And um, I think to Larry's point, in optimistic pieces, even today, we're shutting down more coal plants at a rate equal or faster than Obama. And why is that? It's because of economics as much as it is policy. And so um, I will say for the Sierra Club, what we're uh, going through a fundamental change is also thinking about the both and to get uh, commitments from communities all across the country uh, to 100% clean energy. And in doing so, that is actually, I think, transforming the organization to be from the ground up, to be working with and at the community level, and to make sure that more and more resources are actually going to those communities, because that's where the sustained power is going to be in those community leaders and not in national uh, organizers that come and go. Joe Spiker, a lot of philanthropy in climate is focused on policy. You talk about policy risk. So tell us what policy risk is. Well, uh, this panel and the previous panel, um, our organization were relatively new to the climate space and uh, funding climate initiatives. And so when we looked at the landscape, uh, we, what we saw is that the significant portion of funding goes towards policy and advocacy. And so from a risk perspective, it, the, the entire portfolio of climate philanthropy is, in our view, way overbalanced mm -hmm. towards the policy side. And so that, to me, is inherently risky in and of itself. Uh, and then you can pick apart very specific policies. And I think just recently, uh, we had Larry Kramer talking about how we thought there was going to be a Clinton administration. Obviously, that didn't happen. That was a big risk that folks should have noted and said, OK, what are we, what's plan B? Mm -hmm. So I think 
policy inherently, uh, all philanthropy, it should be very risk tolerant, but policy has very unique things about it that we need to be mindful of. I've seen this, you know, 10 years in climate, I've seen the Western United States, there's uh, groups of states that come together and then governors change and those states go away, they zig and they zag, right? New Mexico's in, it's out, now it's back in with Western states. And Autodesk, are you focusing on technology that can, that can in markets that aren't as dependent on political wins? Is that where you take it? Yeah, that's the, so we said, okay, if everything, if the majority of funding is focused on the policy side, where can we play and be uniquely catalytic um, as a corporate that has D, uh, that has innovation within our DNA? We said, okay, let's focus on that space, and we actually did a deep dive to say, you know, what can we do in the technology space to help advance low carbon solutions? And there was two big things. One is on the technology side, um, and the other was um, the the funding of those early stage organizations. And so that's where the majority of our funding is actually um, one of our big grantees is called Prime Coalition. I just f found out that Dan is also an investor in Prime mm -hmm. Coalition. They are funding the very, very early stage climate technologies that are going to get us to um, very uh, carbon emission reduction targets over a 30-year period. And so that's the stuff that we focus on. Sarah uh, Shanley Hope, the Green New Deal, is, it's now becoming more in, in focus with, uh, with legislation in Congress now. And some people are saying that, oh, it's, it's going big and broad to tackle jobs and everything else. And other people are saying, oh, that's, that's too far. It's going to cost support. So do you think philanthropy is going like, to you know, uh, push that to the middle or make it to go big? I mean, my hope is that philanthropy uh, supports that broader ecosystem that we've been talking about. So, you know, this moment with the Green New Deal and the Sunrise Movement, this has been building for a long time. I um, entered the climate space um, with the Ella Baker Center and, and uh, Green for All, and so was was there 10 years ago at Green for All um, when um, Green Jobs came on board and we attempted, you know, through the Recovery Act. And so what is different, what's really new about this Green New Deal is um, the ground-up momentum and support that even at that time, 10 years ago, you did not have um, the political infrastructure that brought us Justice Democrats and, and AOC and this huge groundswell of, of you know, first time uh, reaching historic numbers for women and women of color elected to office. And you have organizations all across the country, including you know, just a huge influx of young people through the Sunrise Movement bringing this to the fore. So this is not a flash in the pan, and so I hope that, um, and it's built on mm -hmm. decades of economic development, mm -hmm. uh, not just ideas, but practical solutions. Dan and I, I was able to bring Dan and the Ready for 100 uh, Sierra Club campaign team. We all went to Buffalo, New York this past summer, and you could see, you could meet somebody working in every green job imaginable. Stormwater management, energy efficiency, um, food production uh, in, in an aquaponic system. And so those are happening. Those jobs are happening now in ways that they mm -hmm. haven't before. And so for, for climate philanthropy that hasn't yet begun investing in those strategies, now is absolutely the time. I'd say something about that, Andrew. too. That um, mm -hmm. So in the tax bill that passed mm -hmm. in 2017, there was a whole provision to create these new opportunity zones, which um, I don't know if folks have heard about those, but over 5,000 of them across the country. And they were you know, defined based on you know demographics, poverty level, 
And uh, I think what Sarah is saying is that we have either great opportunity or a great danger to superfuel the kind of gentrification that you're talking about with those opportunity zones. But the reality is it's trillions and trillions of capital that's going to be moving starting this year. And I think for climate philanthropists, that's something that needs more attention. I don't really get a sense that it's on the screen for a lot of, uh, uh, certainly for a lot of the national green groups and um, for climate philanthropists. But uh, for me, it's a larger issue of how, how can we make sure that trillions of dollars of capital that is um, going to be deployed into these communities uh, doesn't just end up pushing out the very people that live in those communities today. Joe Spiker, when you look at impact investing or using the capital of the corporation, do you think that market return is at the expense of impact, that there's a tension between those two? I think that it should not be. Um, actually, I want to return to something about really quickly on the Trump bump. I, I, uh, that question got me excited because <laughs> from the corporate side, so many corporate leaders after Trump mm, came to office point. said, what can I do? Oh, I got to do more. Right. And that's you right. could see it in, in uh, you know, that's a lot of leadership here. And, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so uh, to me, that's that I want to uh, um, not happy about those policies. But the fact that uh, our executive leadership knows what the Paris climate agreements were, which <laughs> they may not have known before, right. is a wonderful thing. And so I think that that's an important thing and something that we should continue with is strike while the iron is hot and use that leverage. With regards to impact investing, I do not think that we should be sacrificing market uh, returns because I absolutely think that the societal benefit and business value can be aligned. Not everywhere, but in certain places. You look at Tesla as a company, the more Teslas that are on the roads, the better we are as a society. That is not the case with McDonald's. And so I think that we should be looking for those opportunities. And that's where the, I, I don't like, and Larry Kramer kind of cringed at the term impact investing. I feel the same way a little bit. It should be investing and you get societal returns out of it. But um, I think that that's how we should look at impact investing. Sarah, Shelley, hope there are some foundations that are going towards, you know, uh, political money, LLCs, rather than kind of checkbook philanthropy. What do you think about that diversifying approaches mm -hmm. of philanthropy? It's not just traditional grant making, it's mm -hmm. for-profit investing, using their balance sheets, political activism, different ownership structures. You know, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is an LLC. Mm -hmm. There's a, other LLCs being limited liability corporations being created. What do you think? Of, are you suspicious or supportive of those strategies? I mean, so the Solutions Project, you know, we don't have an endowment. When we started our programs five years ago, um, I didn't have a funder who said, I want you to start a grant-making program. Rather, we had funders um, who said, we believe in the vision and the strategy that you're outlining, which is about radical collaboration. And so when I said, you know, a dollar for us, match it with a dollar that we can invest in frontline organizations, they said yes. And so we built out a grant-making program, built out a media program, built out um, This is the capacity. Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. was funder. one of our biggest funders, yeah, who gave us that kind of freedom mm -hmm. and flexibility in our, in our work. And to your question, um, we ultimately started a number of vehicles for grant making in response to what frontline leaders, communities like Buffalo, New York, mm -hmm. were asking us for, for what they needed. So um, ultimately, where we are now at the Solutions Project is the right dollars at the right time to the right organizations on the ground, um, driving those ground up solutions. So, you know, having C4 dollars available, having um, political, small impact. Contact exactly. deductible political money. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Having, um, you know, uh, impact investing dollars um, 
you know, there are uh, a number of community-determined clean energy projects in, across New York State, across Iowa, the Black Belt in the South, where it's a very small amount of money that's actually needed to unlock larger um, public dollars and, and larger capital stacks. So, you know, a $2,500 grant, I'm sure Dan is seeing some of this as well. Mm -hmm. So the range of... of um, Investment options that foundations or intermediary organizations or now large environmental organizations can um, use as tools for, again, moving money um, to grassroots organizations and to those community-driven solutions are incredible. And if the impact investing conversation was really there and... Um, you know, looking at societal impact and societal um, solutions from the point of kind of greatest harm, which we find is also absolutely the place of greatest hope when your life is on the line, when mm. your mm. community is on the line, you are incredibly innovative. Um, you know, we're for whatever money is moving <laughs> in, in whatever well, everyone's vehicles for more money. there. Um, Joe Spiker, there's something called Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is a group of billionaires that are investing money with a very long time horizon. And the idea is that they're investing in things that wouldn't otherwise get invested in. What's your, you know, what's your take on that? Is that constructive or is it just rich guys trying to get richer? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I actually, from what I said earlier, it's probably a little bit of both. But um, I think that uh, talking about the kind of imbalance in some of the philanthropic dollars, the, the, the latest numbers for um, R&D in climate technologies th that I have are from 2014, 2015, but it's, it's less than 0.5% of all R&D dollars, right? So it's a small, small amount. So any more money, to your point, Sarah, that's flowing in this direction is a good thing overall. And I think that we, I, I think a lot about, um, we have a global perspective. I think about uh, the sub-Saharan Africa, the highest demographic uh, increase that we will see on the planet in the next three decades. We're going to add about a billion people. Um, how can we facilitate the growth of that continent um, while at the same time minimizing emissions? It's going to have to come through technological breakthroughs. To, in order to decouple emissions and growth, we're going to need these new technologies that help us do that. So we're funding a bunch of solar energy initiatives across sub-Saharan Africa, MCOPA, um, and a number of other kind of intermediaries that are doing some work. But these are the things that we need, and I'm thrilled that Breakthrough Energy Ventures is playing in this space and trying to bring that to the fore. Sarah Shanley Hope, uh, we've been talking a lot about metrics and performance requirements that foundations put on their grantees. What is trust-based philanthropy? So trust-based philanthropy is coined by the Whitman Institute, which is here in San Francisco. Um, and it's really about relationship in your grant making, that you understand um, your role as a funder and the role and experience and expertise of who you're funding, who you're investing in. And so that trust-based philanthropy is absolutely a two-way street and one that, you know, for example, at the Solutions Project, we have a third-party evaluation of our grant making, not of our grantees metrics, mm. um, although we do ask them for, thank you very much, we do ask them, um, obviously, for their impact stories and, and the evidence of their success. Um, but trust-based philanthropy is about relationship and understanding um, the roles that we play and what's possible when we work together. Joe Spiker, where should philanthropy go to really t rise to the climate challenge? I believe that so much of philanthropy, um, and, and this is, I think, the, the 
research bears this out, as well as a lot of anecdotal, is that it's way too risk averse. And I think that to uh, Larry Kramer's point earlier, that philanthropy should be going where the, the public and the private markets cannot go or, or seed the ideas that will not be funded by those markets. And so we need a lot more risk tolerance. And I think we need to be swinging for the fences uh, to a much greater degree. The, 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 um, I think that's going to result in a lot more failures, right? And I think that's okay. I think we should be funding failures and talking about it openly and saying this is what happened. But, but to the, the majority of uh, the bureaucracy around the philanthropic machine is focused on the positive incremental small successes, and I think that that's problematic. We're going to go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Uh, my name is Julian Moore. I'm with Climate, uh, Climate Careers as well. Uh, one thing if I'm wondering is that if Trump is reelected or if the current president is reelected, um, I think it's safe to assume that the federal government will not be pointing the resources necessary towards solving this problem and towards um, preparation. To what extent do you think realistically philanthropy can make that gap? And if it can't, then where should we look for the, the money? Dan Chu? Well, so, you know, I, I think the broader frame is uh, do we work on policy advocacy and then do we also work on moving capital? And I think that, you know, there's some connection to those. But, you know, the point that was made earlier, I've been to a lot of different investor forums lately. And there is this, you know, everybody has kids. Everybody cares about their family, uh, even uh, venture capital investor types. And they are all, um, it's just amazing at that investor forum just from 2016 before the election to the one I just went to recently. Uh, it was all about climate. Um, they all recognize that they have to step up to a leadership role. So I, I'm really, um, you know, I'm really optimistic that there is a lot of leadership in um, capital markets, in companies and banks uh, that's really uh, starting to step up. So that, that's my hope. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. I'm Michael Warburton. I'm executive director of a group called the Public Trust Alliance. Mm. And talking about diversifying some of the solutions, we do have this legal infrastructure, you know, the public trust doctrine, where certain things are so valuable for public use, you don't treat them like private property. And it's just an amazing tool for keeping sight of the, the public interest. And I was wondering uh, if you see a future for supporting a very existing uh, legal structure we've had called the public trust doctrine. I'd like to tackle that, Dan Chu. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, before this job, I was uh, head of the land, water, wildlife work for the Sierra Club, and the public trust doctrine is, is central to everything from our public land system to uh, the fact that wildlife is managed for all of us versus for, uh, for just the king or Trump or, you know, whatever that is. And so, um, yeah, I, I think it's absolutely important, and I also think it's, uh, it's so tied to what we often think of as the tragedy of the commons, right? And so... Uh, I, there's been a lot of conversation about public trust doctrine as it relates to uh, carbon, as it relates to water, as it relates to uh, other things beyond it. So, yeah, I definitely think there's some opportunity there. The kids who are suing the federal government are trying to, trying to make that play. Uh, next question. Welcome. Hi, Rupa Kandasamy, uh, relatively new to the climate movement, uh, probably due to Climate One. Thank you. Um, my question was... Uh, there's been a lot of organizations that have been, I don't want to say dragging their feet, but they've been reluctant to join the Green New Deal. But now that the, uh, the New Deal has you know, gathered momentum and the political climate is changing, what do you think it's going to take to uh, bring those organizations to the table and to make a more solid commitment? 
Yeah, I'll, I just would say, again, like taking that view of the full ecosystem um, that we're in and, and the notion that we need everyone to change everything. I was excited today mm -hmm. to see mm -hmm. um, those organizations signing on and those that weren't ready to, but naming why. Yeah. Um, and the bill sponsors and... Um, you know, the growing number of people that are excited about the conversation, staying in the conversation and learning some of the hard lessons around the climate mm -hmm. bill, you know, hmm. how many years, 10 years ago. Ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to, to see, you know, the what, what was the language that they used today that like the opening bid was very high and to go from there um, and see how this goes. So my my sense is, you know, more and more people will join um, as the momentum grows, as um, negotiations begin to happen, as new bills are introduced, not just in D.C., but frankly, uh, in state houses all across the country as there's, there's existing and related policy moving. So again, I feel like it's, an, it's a prime example of what's an opportunity for climate philanthropy, climate activists, leaders, just, you know, supporters to get involved where you live and where you uh, feel called because, you know, if anything, the Green New Deal is a very, there's a wide breadth of issues and entry points. And mm -hmm. um, this is going to be a, a transformation, not, uh, it's, this is not a net metering policy. Greg Dalton and his guests have been talking about climate philanthropy and activism. You've just heard from Sarah Shanley Hope, founder and executive director of the Solutions Project, Dan Chu, executive director of the Sierra Club Foundation, and Joe Spiker, executive director of Autodesk Foundation. In the first half of our program, Greg was joined by Tate Williams, science and environment editor at Inside Philanthropy, Farhad Ibrahimi, founder of the Chorus Foundation, and Larry Kramer, president of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. And join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington and Sarah Catherine Coxon run our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.